If you are visiting today, then thank you so much for coming and being a part of our service today. I do want to give a particular welcome to my mum and dad. Some of you know them, some of you don't. There is no couple in the world that have taught me more about the local church than, than this couple. So when I preached on the dearest place on earth, that, that's their example for many years. Part of the reason why we moved to Australia was because my parents taught me that the most important thing in your life is to follow Jesus. And wherever he takes you, follow him. So let's welcome them and thank them for coming. And today we turn our attention again back to the gospel of Mark. If you want a title, if you're making notes, I've called this message The Master's Mastery. Or in Mark chapter 14. Now, I'm aware we haven't been in Mark for some time. And I'm aware a number of you have joined the church since we were going through Mark. So I have no clue where we're at in the story at all. So let me try and bring everybody up to speed. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Just last Sunday, in effect, he, he enters into Jerusalem on the back of a lowly donkey. And then over the first few days of the week, Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the religious elite. So just last Monday, Jesus cleanses the temple. Zeal for the Father's house consumes him. The temple is so significant in Jewish history and understanding. The temple would be the place where God would encounter his people. And yet this place has become a den of robbers. And so when Jesus turns up to this place, they are selling things. They are bartering for things. And so zeal for his Father's house consumes him. He begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons. And he literally stops people from carrying anything across the temple. And as a result, the religious elite are furious with him. They already hate him, but now they really hate him. Because this is part of the way they get funds for themselves and support themselves by doing this trade in the temple. They hate everything Jesus stands for. And so on the Tuesday... The religious elite confront Jesus and challenge his authority. Literally, as Jesus attends the temple, they meet him on the steps of the temple, and they all want to have a piece of him. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the elders, they all want a piece of Jesus. They want to discredit his authority. They want to throw him under the bus publicly, so everybody just thinks, oh, he's an idiot. And yet Jesus questions them with grace and truth as the Son of God, and he makes it clear that they're the idiots. He completely turns the table on them. And after a number of conversations with these guys, they simply hate him then all the more. He silences them publicly, but they are humiliated publicly. So we read at the start of chapter 14 that they are now seeking to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Well, just last night then, There's been a short interlude in the proceedings as Jesus attends a profound party, a wonderful party that I wish we'd all been there for. The host is Simon the leper. He is clearly a leper no more, otherwise nobody would have been there. One of the chief guests is Lazarus. He's been raised from the dead, so certainly Jesus and the disciples would have a few questions to ask him about what is it like when you're dead. All the disciples are there, and they're having a wonderful evening. Martha is serving the meal, the quintessential servant. And then Mary comes in, Martha and Lazarus' sister, and she makes a beeline for Jesus as she breaks this alabaster jar of ointment worth tens of thousands of dollars. Everybody's quiet. 
Everybody's watching. What is she doing? She breaks the alabaster jar of ointment. She pours the perfume all over his head. And while the disciples look on in disgust, really, as to what's going on, Jesus says, no, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Jesus knows that for Mary, this is a sign of her affection for him. A sign of her understanding that the most precious thing in the room is not this ointment. It's Jesus himself. And he knows in God's sovereignty that she has already now anointed his body for burial. And then in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21, the following takes place. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when, the sacrifice, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we gather around your word, eager and expectant for you to speak to us. Lord, would we all lean in in this moment to hear from your voice, to hear from these words that have been breathed out by you. And so as a preacher, I'm merely retelling what you've already told. So Lord, would we hear your words? Would we hear your voice speaking to us? Lord, for each and every person in the room, would we encounter you this morning? By your grace, Lord, and for your glory. Amen. You know, one of the things we do in our home, and have done for some time, is we have a family night. And a Monday night, all the kids know, Dad's home. No one's going to be doing anything else. We're just going to be spending time together, whether it be in the house or outside of the house. But mostly it is in the house. And one of the things we often do as a family is watch a movie. That's the thing that's voted in. I'm not sure whether it's because of the movie or the snacks. But nonetheless... We have nice snacks, and then the movie begins. And I, I do enjoy a good movie. The lights go off, the snacks come out, we watch a movie. And one of the things I've discovered about good movies, ever increasingly, is whatever it is, usually as the author writes it, when we get to the point of the movie, it starts to go in slow motion. 
So you're, you're watching a movie and it's all about a kid who's trying to get into the World Cup, for example. And it's all about this kid that's trying to get into the World Cup. And he eventually gets into the World Cup. And you know what's going to happen? He's going to have to take the winning penalty. And as the ball is placed on the spot, everything goes in slow motion. And it's about 10 minutes of the film. Because that's where the writer has been taking us. That's where the author has been taking us all along. He wants to help us see that this kid was getting to do the greatest thing in his life. And so everything goes into slow motion as the author tries to point attention to that was the point. Well, here in Mark's gospel, as a wonderful narrator and author that he is, that's exactly what he begins to do right here in Mark chapter 14. He slows us down because this is the whole point. Donald McCloyd, in his book, Christ Crucified, Understanding the Atonement, says the following. He says, when it comes to Good Friday, the Gospels go in slow motion. They have passed over in silence whole decades of Jesus' life. And even when they pick up the threads of his public ministry, there are weeks and months of which they say nothing. Our printed Bibles do not, unfortunately... Highlight the significance of Mark chapter 14, verse 17, where the evangelist introduces his account of the Last Supper with the words, When evening came. Unpretentious though those words sound, they mark a huge moment. For the Jewish day began with sunset. And so this evening marks the beginning of Good Friday. Just 15 hours later, Jesus would be crucified. But these intervening hours would themselves be crammed with drama. The Last Supper, Gethsemane, the betrayal, the arrest and the trial, then the crucifixion, followed by the entombment. From the Last Supper to his burial is a mere 24 hours. And so detailed is the account of his last few hours that we can know exactly what happened at 9 o'clock in the morning, at midday, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Against the backdrop of the previous indifference to chronology, such detail is remarkable and such detail deserves to underline once again the evangelist's concentration on Jesus' death. See, this book has been whistling along at quite a pace. We've had three years, really quickly, in just 13 chapters. But now the whole book begins to slow down. It goes into slow motion as Mark points us to where we've been headed or belong. The crucifixion and Calvary. Sinclair Ferguson in his work says, Mark's, Mark's record marks the events that lead up to the cross with the careful precision of a diarist. He's slowing us down. And he's using the careful precision of a diarist. And since Mark writes with the careful precision of a diarist and intentionally slows his narrative down from months and weeks to days and hours and then minutes as we head towards the cross. I want us then to slow our pace down as well. Because Mark has some incredible things to show us. Some things that will change our lives. And when you do that, when it comes to these to this text that we have before us today, what you discover is this one thing. What you discover in this text is that Jesus, in his sovereignty and authority, is truly in charge of it all.
that Jesus in his sovereignty and authority over all things has always been in charge of it all, but he's also in charge of it all now as he heads to Calvary in our place. And my friends, that's important to note because there are a number of liberal theologians out there that will disagree with what I've just said. They don't believe Jesus is in control. So Albert Schweitzer in his famous book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, this is what he says. He says, there is silence all around. John the Baptist appears and cries, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn. And so he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. The wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurably, uh, one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. According to Schweitzer, Jesus simply overplayed his hand. He came to earth and overplayed his hand, and his result was mangled like a doll in the merciless gears of time. It didn't work out as he meant it to be. It was a simple tragedy, an accident. And so he was crushed and mangled accidentally. He was a helpless victim to everything that was going on around him. And what I believe Mark wants to show us is uh, he's no helpless victim. Jesus Christ, as King of kings and Lord of lords, was heading towards the cross purposefully and sovereignly in authority and in control all along. He wasn't a helpless victim. This was a triumphant death that he was heading towards all along. So I have two points today. Number one, the narrative itself. I want us to go through the story and see it for ourselves. And then number two, the narrative applied. As Martin Luther tells us, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. This book is not some dry old book comes alive when we begin to preach it and read it and examine it for ourselves. It speaks to us today. And so we don't just want to see it and then go, how interesting. We want to see it and then apply it. And when we pause and do that on this point that Jesus is sovereignly in control, oh my, it has some distinct and important application for every single person in the room. Each and every one of you. This is going to address you. So two points, and here's the first. Number one, the narrative itself. Mark wants to show us that Jesus in his sovereignty and authority is in control of it all. That he's sovereignly and authoritatively leading the line. And he does it by splitting this point up into two scenes. And the first scene really highlights this. The first scene highlights the Savior's control over the arrangements for the Passover. Verses 12 through 16. How Jesus was sovereignly and authoritatively controlling all these things. And that's really important to note. Look again at verse 12. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
You know, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be the biggest week in the Jewish calendar. And the pinnacle of that week would be the Passover meal. And in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 5 through 8, Jews are specifically instructed that that Passover meal has to take place within the walls of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem itself would swell to 2.5 million people. It was usually around 250,000 people. So it is 10 times the size. Every Jew that is out there is going into Jerusalem, going into these walls, because they want to enjoy the Passover meal. One lamb would feed around 10 people. And the whole point of the meal is you have to complete the lamb. So that means on this day, around 250,000 lambs would be slaughtered in the temple. There was a distinct smell of lamb on this day in Jerusalem. Everybody's cooking lamb. And because there's so many people all going to Jerusalem... The disciples' concern was, where on earth are we going to go? Where are we going to eat this meal? Where is it going to take place for us? Where are we going to be able to gather? I mean, has anybody organized anything? So that question to Jesus, quite simply, is where exactly are we planning on going? Because this is like a busy time of year there. Where are we going to sit? This is the most important meal of the year. Jesus, what do you want us to do? And what you discover in verses 13 through 15 is their concern is not needed. Because Jesus, without doubt, is one step ahead of them. Look at verses 13 through 15. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. I love it. Jesus has evidently already made some thorough and secretive arrangements with a homeowner in Jerusalem for himself and his disciples to enjoy the Passover meal in his upper guest room, in the chamber above his house. And evidently, it would appear that this homeowner is most likely a follower of Jesus. The temperature in Jerusalem was difficult. Jesus had just been having a clear toe-to-toe with all the guys in the temple. They want to kill him. Anybody that's following Jesus is starting to become aware. This is certainly a turbulent time. So to have Jesus in your home on this day would not be popular with many already. But this man is clearly a follower of Jesus. He said, yeah, you can, you can use my house. Jesus has gone ahead and talked to this man at some point and explained, on that Passover meal, I, I want to use your house. I want to have a Passover meal with my disciples. And this man has agreed. And he's even agreed to this secretive way of ensuring that these two disciples that Jesus will, will send, the secretive way of a man carrying a water jar to guide them back to the house. Now, when we read that today, we think, surely there will be many people carrying water jars, don't you think? Surely there would be many men carrying water jars. So how did they know this was him? Well, they knew this was him because men in Jewish tradition didn't carry water jars. Women carried water jars. Men carried water skins. And so for a man to be found carrying a water jar, it would be like him carrying a handbag today. He was spottable. So when his two disciples went in, they're like, yeah, there he is. And they began to follow him. These disciples are recorded to us in the Gospel of Luke to be Peter and John. And so Peter and John have been sent on by Jesus 
to find this man carrying the water pots and then follow him and then prepare in the upper room the Passover meal. Quite clearly, Jesus has gone into a great deal of trouble to set this moment up for himself and his disciples, hasn't he? Quite clearly, he's taken a lot of time and thought, tender care and affection prior to the moment to prepare this for them. Clearly. Why? Well, because of his sovereignty and authority. See, first and foremost, in his sovereignty and authority, Jesus already knows that Judas is going to betray him. In his foreknowledge, he already knows Judas is going to be his betrayer. He's going to be the one that is going to hand him over to the chief priests and the scribes. He's the individual that is going to do this. But Jesus knows that his time is still not yet. There is still more to do. There is a meal to take place. And so he secretively arranges to go in this upper room without telling all of his disciples. Because he knows if he tells Judas, then this meal will never happen. He'll betray me now. And the meal will never even take place. And so in his sovereignty and authority, he's keeping it guarded from Judas because there is work to be done in this meal. And in his sovereignty and authority, he knew how important it was to inaugurate this Last Supper meal with his disciples. Because he would use this meal to prepare them yet again for his death. And he would use this meal yet again to inform them of his death's meaning and significance. So as he takes the bread, he's going to tell them, this bread that used to point back to the lamb. Not anymore. As I break this bed, it's going to point to what I'm about to do for you. And this wine that's to point back to the blood of the lamb. Not anymore. It's going to point now to the blood that I'm about to spill for you. He's inaugurating the Last Supper and a Passover meal that will go on for decades and decades and centuries that we still enjoy today. He knew this must take place. See, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 42, Moses says the following about the Passover. He says, Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. So he wanted to show that at these Passover meals, because the Lord kept vigil that night, standing guard over all of the entranceways to those who knew him, on this night they are to keep vigil, they are to keep awake to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Curious. Well, the Jewish commentary on that passage reveals that in that night they were redeemed, and so in that night they will be redeemed in the future. The Jewish tradition understood that this night is reflective of what's happened in the Passover, but it is also a precursor to the fact that the Messiah will come. One will come. Surely God will send a Messiah to come. And so they would keep vigil that night and keep alert because they were always anticipating a Messiah to come. That's why Kent Hughes in his commentary says this Passover meal was easily the most important meal eaten in the history of the world. And so it was, wasn't it? All the Passover lambs, imagine, 250,000 lambs have been slaughtered for centuries. 
year after year after year, millions of lambs have been slaughtered and sacrificed. Yet Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. So he knew this meal has got to happen. I can't let Judas know about it. He'll just betray me before it even happens. So I'm going to conceal it from him so that he doesn't even know where we are. And then during the meal, I'm going to help my disciples see yet again why I have come and the reality that I'm going to die and why I'm going to die for them. And that's exactly what happens in verse 16, having sovereignly and authoritatively controlled the events. In verse 16, it says, And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Far from being crushed in the gears of history, Jesus was turning its wheel. Far from being crushed in what has taken place, Jesus is sovereignly and authoritatively in control throughout. He's not just reacting to events, he's orchestrating them. He's no helpless victim in this moment. He is the Savior who is completely and sovereignly in control of it all, isn't he? Concealing from Judas, arranging ahead of time a man to be there, sending the disciples, it happening just as he said. Because he knows this, this night's got to take place. So he sovereignly and authoritatively controlled it all. And then in verses 17 through 21, we see the Savior's control over the announcement of his betrayal. That's the second scene. The Savior's control over the announcement of his betrayal. Even this doesn't just come out. It doesn't just come out at all. Jesus is in control. Look then at verses 17 and 18. It says, And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. You know, this Passover meal, just like all the other Passover meals, would have no doubt begun as a seriously festive occasion. That's what the Passover meal was. It was joyful. It was hope-filled. It was a meal of celebration. A celebration, looking back, celebration of God's historic intervention on behalf of the people of God historically, and a celebration looking forward to the reality that He will surely do it again. He will send a Messiah who will make our nation great again and who will help us as a nation to be a blessing to all. They didn't fully understand what the Messiah was going to do, but they always anticipated him. They were always waiting for him. Many Jews today are, in effect, still waiting. So they would celebrate the Passover meal, looking back and looking forward, looking back to God's faithfulness, looking forward to his faithfulness again. And Jesus, as the Messiah, as the leader of these disciples, he would have no doubt been in charge of this celebration. And the disciples would have been no doubt overwhelmingly amazed to be participating in this because they understand he is the Messiah. We're having the Passover meal with the guy, with the one we've been waiting for. This is it. Imagine how excited they would have been. And so the meal would have begun festively and celebratively, just like it would have done every year. Jesus, as he led in it, would have pronounced a blessing on the Passover meal. He would have then taken the first drink from the first cup of wine. He then would have proceeded to recite the story of the Exodus 
and the Jewish redemption from Egypt. Every father in a home or every leader of a group would have done this on this night. And then he would led them in singing a new song for their redemption. First part of the Halal in Psalms 113 through 115. They would have sang this together, reminding themselves of all that the Lord has done. And then he would have directed them to drink the second cup of wine. And then he would have proclaimed another blessing on them. And when he would have broken the bread for them to all eat. And so that's what they're doing. Spreading the bread out. And they start taking the bread and they start dipping it in the pot that's there. They start eating of it. And imagine the shock on their faces then, the utter horror, when in the midst of that celebration, effectively, Christmas lunch, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. They can't, they can't believe that one of you is going to betray me. They are in utter horror. They are distraught by this news, especially given to the fact that this is an allusion to Psalm 41 verse 9 and the treachery of Ahithophel. See, in Psalm 41, David is recalling how Ahithophel, a close confidant of David, a close advisor of David, when Absalom, David's son, rejected David and led a revolt against him, Ahithophel went with Absalom. He completely stabbed David in the back. He was a traitor before David. One of his closest friends stabbed him in the back and then left with his son. Psalm 41 verse 9, recounting that, this is what David says. He said, even my close friend in whom I trust, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Everybody knew that in Jewish tradition. They remember Ahithophel. One who used to eat bread and drink wine with David. One of his closest confidants. And yet who struck David and betrayed him and then left him. Jesus is alluding to that right here. Who is it going to be? Well, one who's eating with me right now. One of the twelve. One of you. So verse 19 It says, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? See, for 11 of them, they know it's not them. But they also know you know all things. And so I I don't think it's me. I I don't want it to be me. it's It's a look of horror on their faces. They're saying, look, I don't want it to be me, but is it me? Because if it is, tell me. I might be able to change. I might be able to stop. Is it? I, Lord. So you have to remember, since chapter 3, verse 19, which is a year ago for us at Song Grace, we've all known since then, it's Judas. It's him. Mark tells us. The disciples don't know that at all. They're just sitting around with these 12 people that have become their closest friends on the planet. And they have no clue it's Judas. He's completely concealed that from them. They don't know it's him at all. And so they're genuinely asking, Lord, is it me? The Gospel of John in chapter 13, verse 22, continues the story for us. He says, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They just don't have a clue. They're wondering, Lord, who's it going to be? 
And clearly he's, he's not really telling them. So they're just going around one, in per, one after another. No doubt Judas was there as well. Oh, is it I? They're just taking it in turns to put their hand up and ask the question, is it me? And Jesus is not responding. But he says to them on response to, is it I? He says, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Well, that's not very helpful. So it's one of us. We know that. Is it I? Well, Simon Peter, given his character, he cannot wait to discover who it is. He needs to know who it is. I would be like that as well. I can't eat another thing until you tell me who is it. And so Peter he has a little chat with John who is reclining on Jesus. In Jewish tradition, this would be a square table. So I don't know where all these pictures have come from with a, like a long table. Oh, it's the Last Supper. That's beautiful. It's most likely a square table. So they're all sitting around and looking at each other. And they would all recline on each other. And so Jesus has deliberately set it up. So Judas is on his right. John is on his left. And they're all leaning back on each other as they eat. Well, Simon Peter sees that and he gets John's attention to discover, can you ask him, who is it? So chapter 13, verse 23 of the Gospel of John, it says, One of his disciples, Peter, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus, he was right right there on Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He takes his bread and he dips it and he gives it to Judas. You know, when you did that in Jewish tradition, when you took bread and dipped it and then gave it to somebody, that was an offer of unconditional friendship. It was, you are my friend. I love you. I am for you. Eat from this bowl with me. I give you my food. But it was too much for Judas. He was overwhelmed in this moment. And he snatched it from the Savior's hand. In verse 27 of John 13, it says, And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. At which point Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Because this was the night. This was the Passover meal night. Everybody for centuries had been celebrating this night, looking back to a Passover lamb, but looking forward to one to come. So Jesus knew, now that we've had this meal, what you're going to do, do quickly. Because I've come. And now is my time. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is not some doll caught in the gears of history. He is walking headlong to Calvary in control of it all. Douglas MacDonald in his works says, for these are sentences saturated with sovereignty. Isn't that wonderful? They are saturated. They are dripping with God's sovereignty. They are dripping in the reality that the Savior is in control of it all. He's in control of every piece of information. Every moment he knows what's coming. He knows what's going to be asked. He's in control of it all. They are dripping with God's sovereignty. 
James Edwards, in his commentary, which is one of my favorites, he says, Jesus, Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in the events beyond his control. There is no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility on his part. Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout the Gospels, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. Listen to this. Judas and others may act against him, but they do not act upon him. They may act against him, but they are not pushing the Savior around to go where he doesn't want to go. They may act against him, but they are never acting upon him. He's in control of it all. He knows when is the right time, which is why he releases Judas. Not a moment too soon, and not a moment too late. That's why we read in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's helping him see, you've got to go now. I've tried to stop you. I've given you my bread. An offer of friendship, an offer of trust, an offer of forgiveness. But you've rejected it. I say, you need to go now. My time has come. I'm ready. This is what I've been sent for. And so just as we read in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, this is my hour now. So as it is written, I'm ready to go to the cross. He's in control of it all. Every last minute. Every last detail. He knows what's going to happen. And he's either ordaining it to be or allowing it to be to ensure that his sovereign and authoritative plan is taking place. You know, the narrative itself is incredible and compelling, isn't it? When you stop and pause on it, which is why Mark now slows the pace, to just stop and pause on it is to be overwhelmed that Jesus, he is so sovereign and authoritative and so majestic in it all. No one's pushing him around. He's not being acted upon. He's acting with strength and clarity and purpose all the way to the cross. But this narrative does need to be applied because it has application for us, which is why it's here. It has hands, it has feet, it has a voice. It wants to embrace us all today. And when we pause and linger on it, we realize it speaks to me today. So that's my second point, the narrative applied. And so what are we supposed to learn from this? Why is it here? How are we to apply this? And what then does this all mean for us today? What difference does this make to you individually, given this afternoon and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? What is it here for? Because we can make a grave mistake and just go away and think, isn't that amazing? Now, what's for lunch? We can be that flippant with this profound information. Mark's written it with one eye on the papyri and one eye on you. He wants to speak to you. It's God breathed. He wants to communicate to you. And there's two things that I think this text teaches us. Two things that I think it shows us and still therefore speaks to us in today. And here's the first 
speaks to us of the hope-filled reality that he still offers mercy to traitors to this day. It speaks of the hope-filled reality that Jesus in his grace still offers mercy to traitors to this day. See, there is no doubt that in a formal sense, Judas here is the ultimate betrayer, isn't he? For three and a half years, he's been walking around with Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. For three and a half years, he's been spending time with Jesus, loving on Jesus, saying all the right things to Jesus. He's, seen, he's been there as a close confidant when Jesus has been healing people, when Jesus has been training the disciples. They would have shared endless meals together, endless jokes together, endless fun times together. They are a close-knit group of guys. And yet somewhere along that line, Judas went from somebody who really did want to follow this guy to a pretender. One who didn't really want to follow him. Wasn't even that impressed with him. So he became a pretender. Actually, the Gospels tell us that he was a thief. He decided that he would become the group treasurer. And he decided that because he would be in charge of the money back, and then he would take money out the back and spend it on himself at different points. He was conning the very group of guys that he was with. Imagine what it must have been like then when Jesus gets down on his knees and begins to wash his feet. Knowing full well, you're the one that's going to betray me. But tonight, I'm going to serve you. The creator of heaven and earth, down on his knees, washing the feet of his betrayer. And throughout it all, Judas just smiles away. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Judas, in a formal sense, without doubt, is the ultimate betrayer. And so when Jesus, in this scene, offers him a morsel of bread that has been dipped in his bowl, a profound Jewish act of friendship, this man, in that moment, for him, it was too much. In that moment, he could have taken it and got down on his knees and said, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I repent. I don't want this for me. That's why Jesus was doing it. There's still time. I'm giving this to you. Take it. And yet he didn't. He took it in effect in anger and then ran from the room because he was going to betray Jesus now all the more. He couldn't stand it anymore. In a formal sense, Judas Iscariot is the ultimate betrayer. And yet it's important to note that in all reality, by dawn, the very next day, all of the disciples have betrayed Jesus. Judas Iscariot because of greed. And yet the others have all ran away as well. Out of weakness for some, fear for others, of just a mere slave girl, and cowardice for others. The shepherd has been struck and everybody has left. The very man that said, I'm not going anywhere. They've gone. They've all betrayed him. Whether it be greed or cowardice or weakness or fear, they've all gone. And my friends, it's important for us to know that each and every one of us in the room have betrayed him as well. We've all run from him. We've all deserted him. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, For all like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned 
every one of us to his own way. Each and every one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We haven't lived our lives from life's first cry to final breath. Just all Jesus, I I love you. I'm amazed with you. I just want to live for you. We haven't done that. We've been disinterested in him. And then at different times, even when people have communicated to us about Jesus, we've been like, oh yeah, thanks for that. We're not interested. And that's why in the natural, as Mark 14 verse 21 says, it would be better for us then to have not even been born. Because just like Judas, we betrayed Jesus. And one day the Bible says that we will stand and give an account for our lives. We will stand before him. And in that moment, if we are found to be a betrayer, if we are found to have not lived for him, to not to have acknowledged him, not to have followed him, then we will suffer a traitor's death. We will be removed from him for all eternity. And here, my friends, that's why Jesus came. He came knowing that left to ourselves, that is what we will all do. All like sheep have gone astray. And yet Jesus came full of grace and truth to dip his bread in his bowl and try and offer it to each and every one of us today. A sign of friendship, a sign of love, a sign of put your faith in me. For one day you will stand and give an account before the great creator of all. But I want to give you this bread and I want you to eat it because when you do, you'll be forgiven of your betrayal. You'll be adopted into the Father's home and you will know that heaven is your home for all eternity. So I'm offering you this bread. The Bible tells us in Romans 10 verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus holds out his offer to each and every one of us. And the one who calls on his name then will be saved. The one who says, Lord, I get it. I want to take that bread and I want to eat that bread. Would you forgive me of my sin? In that moment, he says, yes, I will. Because 15 hours from this moment, I'm going to be dying on a cross for you. I'm going to be paying the price of a traitor for you. I'm going to be giving my life as a ransom for you. So take the bread and eat it. Put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, and I will give you life. That's why I came. That's what this text teaches us. The hope-filled reality that he still offers mercy to traitors to this day. My friends, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, take the bread. Put your faith in him as Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. Jesus didn't come just to show us a better way. He didn't come as a great person or a great teacher. He came as a ransom bearer. In doing so, he offers us the bread. Take it. Take it and know this life that he brings. That's not the only thing I think we see in this text. It's not the only reality. The second reality, a reality that quite simply I've been mesmerized by, by all week, is this. It's the comforting reality. The comforting reality that in the same way Jesus was sovereign and powerful in the midst of his darkest night. 
He is sovereign and powerful in the midst of our darkest nights as well. In the same way that he was sovereign and powerful over the darkest night of his earthly life. He's sovereign and powerful over the darkest nights of our lives as well. Job 5 verse 7 says, As sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. And it's true, isn't it? At different times in our lives, we all face long and dark nights, don't we? Different times in our lives, we all face things that appear long and appear very dark to us. So you wake up Monday morning. You don't feel well. So you go to the doctors, assuming that you're probably going to take some tablets, you'll be okay. The doctor refers you to a specialist. And the specialist gives you bad news. And suddenly, as if from nowhere, you're in the midst of a very dark night. You've been praying for years that the Lord, by his grace, would provide a spouse for you. And yet, yet again, you are in yet another month of hope deferred. There's still no sign of him. And it appears one long and dark night for you in this regard. As the desire of your heart is just not being realized by the Lord. Or the job that you've been giving yourself to for years, you've worked your way up. Boss calls you coming in Friday, and you've been made redundant. What? For years I've said, oh, the Lord's blessing me on my work. He's blessing me on my work, blessing me on work. I got made redundant this week. But how did that happen? And suddenly you're in a, you're in a long dark night, and you don't know how you're going to be able to put food on the table or what this is going to look like for you or your family. The kids that you've been seeking to befriend and love and train in the way they should go for years are now walking through trials. And as you look on at them through the trial, they are clearly walking away from the Lord and your heart is breaking for them. And you're aware this is, this is a long and dark night for me now. And actually often at night while you are lying in your bed, you are troubled about it. Or the relationships, the friendships, you crave, you just feel disconnected and alone from people. Maybe even in the midst of a marriage relationship as you realize it is coming apart. And it's a dark night for you. My friends, all of us at different times face long dark nights, don't we? Sure, sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. But here's the point. In the same way that Jesus was sovereignly and authoritatively in control of his long dark night, he's sovereignly and authoritatively with you in the midst of yours as well. It's one of the great promises of Scripture, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. I will hem you in both behind and before. Nothing will happen to you outside of my control either by me ordaining it or allowing it. I will be with you. Sure, things will happen. Things happen in the world. Sure, sparks fly up, which troubles fall. But God himself guarantees, I will be with you. My friends, there will be times then where we will not know why. 
that we will be in the midst of that night and we will be wondering, why has this happened to me? This text doesn't answer that. And as your pastor, I can't answer that. But what this text does answer, and what I always want you to know, is though we don't know why, we do know who. We do know who is sovereignly and powerfully with you in the midst of your dark night. And I believe the who is good news. Here's why. Because 15 hours later, he would be hanging on a cross in your place because he passionately and personally and particularly loves you. So you may never know why when it comes to your dark night. But you can know who. Who it is that holds you. And given the love he displayed at Calvary, I submit to you, we can always then trust him. My friends, far from being a helpless doll crushed in the gears of history, Jesus in his sovereignty and authority was in charge of it all. He was truly in charge then, using all things for his good and the Father's glory. And he's doing the same now as he oversees your life. You may be running in just like the disciples in terms of, where are you? Oh, he's there. He's there. And he has a plan that he will use for your good and his glory. And so in him, may we always find a sweet peace. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. And Lord, we do thank you that it still, without question, speaks today. Oh, Lord, this isn't some old dead historical book. This is a book that comes alive in our hands, that speaks to us, that runs after us, that pursues us. Lord, I thank you for speaking to us today. I thank you that you encountered us today in the midst of preaching. And you have spoken to our souls afresh. So Lord, would we trust you? Would we trust you? And in you would we find a sweet, sweet peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.